Welcome to Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. Hello, Otterites! This is episode 171. I am Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. So, uh, today is history episode, and follows along a little bit with our treaties, even though there's not a specific treaty here. Um, but it's this, a charter. It's a charter. It's kind of the capstone. That's where everything is led to. But it, it, yes, it, it, it is. It's a capstone of those agreements, and it does lead from uh, post-war or during the war uh, international agreements, primarily driven by Roosevelt and Churchill. Right. And that's the United Nations. And we've titled this episode, The UN, A Wretched Hive of Scum and Villainy. So we're being kind. Um, that, that's a you know a joke <laughs> I've seen on the internet. Uh, so it's it's completely stolen. I have to admit. Um, comparing yeah, it's good, you know. Hey. Yeah, comparing the UN to Moss Eisley spaceport. But yeah, it feels like a knock against Moss Eisley. Yeah, Ooh, very good stuff. <laughs> yes, indeed. So again, like the with the League of Nations, this is built with the best of intentions. Yes, I, I will grant that that the United Nations as a concept, is a very noble ideal. I think it was almost inevitable, too. Well, I think it's inevitable in a couple of different ways, because as I was thinking about this on the drive over, because uh, we are here in uh, Studio R, or Studio R, that, that's my place. We're here in Studio M. Studio <laughs> M. Thank you, thank you. Just yeah. finished a nice big lunch. Yes, yes. Uh, it was either record or take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> but as I was thinking about this, and the UN, I think... It was inevitable as far as a, it's an obvious growth out of the League of Nations, but I think what really makes it inevitable are the, the, the atrocities by the Nazis. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I that, that is that's what, what really cements curb. the need for the UN. And I think that it's deliberate that it's not a treaty to, that had to be taken to the Senate. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to give Roosevelt credit for... This is a sketch on a napkin of an international agreement with Winston Churchill. They're the two guys driving this. They're the two guys working this out. And it's it's the goal, the plans, you know, for the post-war world. Right. What are we going to do? How are we going to handle this? And certainly it's fraught with more peril than just... All right, we, we flattened this entire huge monster country in the middle of the continent. What do we do with that? There's, of course, the Soviet question. Yes. Um, we're allies, but kind of arm's length allies. Right. You know, uh, we don't trust Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe doesn't trust us. Um, Churchill, in particular, is... Very cautious about church uh, about Stalin. Very, right, very, right. very cautious. Right. Perhaps much more than Roosevelt. Well, you know, Churchill's right there. Well, you know, yeah, it's a little bit easier for the United States to be uh, a little, you know, and say, well, you know, maybe Joe's not so bad as long as he stays over there. Yeah. But you know, for Churchill, you know, war nearly came to the shores. I mean, yeah. you, you say it did through bombing, even though German soldiers didn't invade, but. You know, he didn't want to see that again. And he's, you know, Churchill is hip deep in the uh, Poland question, what's going on there. Yeah. Britain hosts what they feel is the legitimate government of Poland, but that Stalin... Right, the pre-war government. Right, and, and that Stalin does not feel is a legitimate government because it doesn't have anything to do with him. Right. And he's got boots on the ground, so he wins that. He wins, yeah. He wins that. Uh, He got there before the Brits could. And so there's a huge part of this is is this Churchill reaction and Churchill figuring out what the continent's going to look like. And at the same time, he's having to deal with, pretty soon, he's going to lose an election. Right. The man who held the world together with both arms uh, is going to lose an election in his home country uh, very, very soon after this. this. Yeah. It really does. It still is, yeah. yeah. Um, Ungrateful so, Brits. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, he asked everything they could give, I guess, and they, they said, well, it's time to let somebody else ask us for things. Yeah. 
or time for us to ask the government for things instead. So, which is a fair point. It's a fair point. I get that. But they they do bring on then uh, eventually China as well, um, and and bring on other nations sign on to this declaration of what's going to be built in the United Nations, and you know it, it's it's heavily criticized um, over the years as very ineffective. But it had kind of be built that way almost because we already saw where the league failed. That's right. Yeah. Right. You're already seeing the league fail. Well, why does the league fail? Because you're not going to talk all these people into going to these, getting involved in these wars. So we have to water that part of it down. Pretty well, but much. And say that's our goal is to prevent all these wars. But we're not really going to give ourselves the power to do anything about it. Right. And, you know, you could argue that really the United Nations is is the League of Nations and just everybody agrees that, okay, we'll actually do it this time. Oh, that's very, that's very true. That's correct. Because if you think about it, I mean, you know, obviously there is a different structure. Yeah. But it, but in intent, it really is about the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and effectually, it's, it's better. Honestly, I think the UN, obviously we didn't start out thinking of it this way uh, more than likely. Uh, because this is going on during the war, and we're, and we're conceiving, and, and obviously it's Churchill and Roosevelt, but you got to bring Uncle Joe in because he's right there. Yeah, yeah he but, controls. You know, I'm thinking that it starts out between Churchill and and Roosevelt as a way to contain Uncle Joe as well. Yeah, because oh. there's going to be another war in Europe. It's coming from him. There's no question. There's a visionary aspect to this that Wilson did not impart. Right. To, um, well, he imparted ideals, but not practicality. Well, yeah, because he didn't see. You know the war to end all wars. It was you know we're done with this. Yeah, we're, we're this this league is so perfect <coughs> that there's no way war will ever happen. We're just going to kind of right. set this in place. Whereas you know thirty years later, that uh, very much yeah. Churchill yeah, the and, and Roosevelt so, they say, yeah. well hell yeah, it's going to happen again unless we really do something yeah. to make this unless work. we really mean it this time. Yeah. yeah, and they and in order to do that, you have to have a at least titular enemy in mind. Well, but that's the interesting thing, because whether it was intentional by the Soviet Union or not, or by all of the other countries who were going to get stampeded in the Cold War between us, it effectively neutralized both of us, both the United States and the Soviet Union. So really, the, the purpose of the Soviet Union was, or the United Nations was less to prevent war in Europe than I think than to prevent the United States and the Soviet Union from going to literal war instead yeah. of Cold War. That's right. It, it it gave us the cover on both sides. Yes. To have proxy fights. Exactly. Uh, and while especially that's, for the Soviets, it gives it gives them a huge amount of cover to encourage all these revolutionary movements and destabilize anything they can destabilize. Right. Because that's it that was a deliberate strategy. Destabilize any place in the world because the West will want them stable. Yes. And will do something and will expend blood and treasure to get these places stable, even though they really shouldn't care. Right. Like, why would they care about Korea? Nobody has ever cared about Korea. But the Soviets knew if we can destabilize that, we destabilize Africa, all of these. Co- uh, Countries that are gaining independence that were former colonies of the West. Right. Places that are ripe for revolution because they have been occupied by foreign powers. So Korea has been occupied either by Japan or Korea for decades upon, you know, probably to centuries. Yes. So it's ripe in that sense. Uh, Vietnam is is Indochina when things start to go to hell there. And when the French pull out, it falls to the United States to, to step in. Right. So all these places that are ripe for revolution, they see as, well, of course they're ripe for revolution because that is the natural progression of things to throw off capitalism. Yeah. yeah. For, I'm glad you mentioned that because there is an ideological background to this that I'm not sure if it had, if communism, Bolshevism in particular, did not have the overthrow intent to make the revolution worldwide, we would have had the need for this like we did. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. We knew, and this was, it was stated. It, it was Marxism, uh, it's well, Leninism, it's, it's, it's in, in the great Orwellian tradition that is Bolshevism, it's both. 
they have both things in mind. Yeah. It's, yes, it's glorious revolution, but also it's, it'll piss off the Americans. And it will force our adversary, our primary adversary, to expend blood and treasure in places they, their people don't care about. Right. So, Thereby undermining their own credibility. Yes. Yes. And well, we the world get, stage we get, at their own place. Right. We yeah. get dragged into these things. And at the time, the Russians are, they're not, they don't care. They're just dumping stuff in. Here, have a, you know, have three million AKs. Right. We shoot got a few left other. over from the war. Yeah. Shoot each other and have at it. We don't well, care. Plus an AK is, you know, like one of the cheapest weapons to manufacture. And as well. also extremely efficient. Too. Yes. Yes. So here's a question that you're, especially for Robert, what he was talking about kind of strikes with me, it is what limited success the UN has had, is that con- attributable to the new structure or is it just attributable to there are many more countries with consensual governments now than mm-hmm. there was at the time of the League? So if the... Answer is well. It's because there there are so many more consensual governments. Does that make the UN redundant and pointless? Well, I don't know that A necessarily flows to B, which necessarily flows to C. Um, I have to think a little bit harder on that. But my gut instinct is the first part of your question um, was because, it, and I'll just interrupt and say, yeah, we're we're being very disdainful of the UN. Yes. There have been some successes. Yes, yes, obviously. I mean, you could. Some of it is correlation, not causation, because, you know, we haven't had a major world war since the UN came about. But I think that's all part, I think that's more about the, the doctrine of MAD than it is the yes, UN. Exactly. And then that would be my position that the UN's got very little to do with it. It's deterrence through uh, nuclear weapons, as, yes. we, as we discussed. Mutually assured destruction. As we discussed during Kellogg Breon, and the fact that. It's not a perfect world, but it's a better world in that some of these places now have consensual governments that did not at the time of the League. Right. So I, I think there is a combination that, you know, the League has, uh, because, again, I don't know if it's so much structure as it is that, again, people have decided, well, you know, let's actually really give it a shot this time. Because World War II was, you know, orders of magnitude, not just even, you know, double. I mean, we're talking like orders and orders of magnitude worse for the continent than World War One was. Right. And not just the continent, but everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was... Obviously, it's still mostly a European-East Asian war. A little bit of North Africa, but, you know, it's still pretty well focused in that same region, the same players. But the destruction is greater and more widespread. So, on the one hand, I think people were so disgusted and, 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 and traumatized by what happened that it's like, yeah, we, we really got to prevent this because we can't do this yeah. again. We thought we, thought another we generation. fixed this. Yeah. And then, no, wait a minute, we wouldn't even come close. Right, because, I mean, you look what happened to, to Germany, you look what happened to France, you look what happened to every country between France and the, the Soviet Union. Well, every, every country between Paris, every bit of land between Paris and Moscow mm-hmm. was a battlefield. Mm-hmm. Pretty yeah. much everything. Pretty, yeah, nearly every square inch. Yeah. And... So, I, and part of that goes to your question about the consensual government. So, where we have consensual government, they're going to, you know, the people are going to say, don't screw this up. Yeah, we you got know? it good. We got it good. I don't lost ruin every this. one of my kids in this war. Yeah. You know, things like that. Yeah, so, our, yeah. our children are too precious now right. for all of these things that we used to go to war for. So, I, I think it's some of, I think it's a little bit more of, of that probably than anything else, but I don't know if that's, I would lay everything at that. Um, because so what role would the UN then play? Because, I mean, there are some stunning failures here as well. Oh, yes. Primarily, again, primarily the Civil War. And that's always difficult because how do you justify getting involved in someone else's Civil War? Right. We wouldn't have, like, if the UN had existed in 1861, uh, we wouldn't have cared for them to come in on one side or the other. Right. Or stand around in blue helmets with no guns in between us. Right. we got to finish this. Right. You know, get out of the way, UN. we got to finish this. So what right does the UN have then to interfere in Rwanda or Syria or any of these other places well, tearing themselves apart? I think Rwanda, I can make a case for that. 
Yeah, because of the genocide. Aspect, yeah, that's, yes. there's a human rights aspect there. Now, granted, it, but it was a it failure. Was an, it was an utter failure. Yeah, they failed. But honestly, I think that is more of an utter failure because I, I'm not saying it's because well, it's just brown people. But honestly, I don't think they committed to that the way they committed to some other interventions. They did not commit to that the way they committed to Korea. Now, granted, Korea was mostly us, but most of these peacekeeping forces is mostly us. Right. Right. I mean, that, that then comes down to, well, maybe the way we settle these things is not the UN coming in with no guns and sitting in a trench, not shooting back. But the way you deal with it, if you truly want these things stopped, then somebody like us that has Marines and guns and tanks and V-22 Ospreys and F-35s, and comes 10 in, warthogs? Yeah, and comes in and settles this crap. But then we're conquerors. Yeah. They, they, well, they, they'll never sell that. But at the same time then, we've since then failed that as well. Because we have. the model is, well, just go hide in the caves. Because even the awesome firepower and technological marvel that is the U.S. military has limits. It does. Well, hide in the cave for 20 years and then you get to take the country back. Right. And, and do it spectacular with a spectacular poke in the eye mm-hmm. to yeah. those that were hunting you for 20 years. Yeah. So... Are we speaking Afghanistan? Yeah, oh, absolutely we're speaking uh, so Afghanistan. I was going to say. Yeah. So, said it, but we I mean, it, this, this just keeps driving me towards this libertarian aspect of why are we doing any of this? Well, I, I think the UN having any kind of military capability early on is probably a good threat before... Nuclear weapons have proliferated like they have now. I think now a UN peacekeeping force is almost by definition a joke. Yeah. You know, where I, th- now if. I mean, they sit in the middle and don't shoot back. Right. Who's, right. I mean, you're. you're and it's really hard to put Americans in that situation because. Look, I mean, it's a relief. It's like Robert effort. Williams said, you know, we're Americans, we're nice people. Piss, but piss us, off, piss us off and we'll bomb your cities. You know? yeah. We yeah. don't like to be shot yeah. at without being able to shoot back. I mean, I think it was even like, it was a General Mattis. He, he, he did, did, did that kind of a statement in a serious way of, look, we don't want to do this. We don't want to flatten you. But <laughs> piss us off and I will wipe out everybody here. Right, that's right. Quickly. So, and, and if the UN were to be useful, mm-hmm. I think the, the the only real thing it could be useful at would be as the host for the International Court, which is actually at The Hague, not Well, New it York. is, but it is part of the UN. Right, it, right. It is done under UN auspices. Right, right. I'm just saying it's not, you know, at UN yeah. headquarters or anything, but it, it's at The Hague. Um, and fostering economic cooperation because if anything has prevented massive war breaking out it is the economic interdependence that most countries have with each other yeah, those that, that used to go to war all the time that's right where we have genocide and civil wars and large nations invading their smaller neighbors <coughs> Ukraine um, yeah. I like how he does yeah. that that's very good, very good yeah. uh, you know it, it's where the either you've got somebody who's insane, <coughs> Vlad, uh, you know, or you have age-old injuries and hurts that have yet to be settled. Uh, so think Yugoslavia. That's what say Serbia comes right to mind. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Rwanda, um, uh, Burundi. Yeah. And, you know, we have in in my parishes a large population from Burundi and some from Rwanda, I believe. And they they came here because of what went on there. Uh, we have a lot. Of, there's a lot of uh, Nigerians here in the United States that left because it wasn't necessarily genocide, but it wasn't necessarily the best place to be. Mm. And that's just because it's you know, forgive the phrase, akin to a third world country. Uh, but you know, let's face it, much of Africa is still developing. Yeah, I mean, when you consider it, Nigeria is kind of an African su- success story, right? And it's still a little bit of a mess, and still a and little there, bit of a mess. There's yes. still tribal friction, right, uh, and things like that that go on in these countries, right? Never mind, you know, something like South Africa, yeah, well, or Syria. Uh, I mean, it's a great example, you know, because that this was a, a very, you know, the, they're a wealthy country. Yeah, well, Lebanon, yeah, it's probably even a better example, yeah, to go back because Lebanon, Lebanon for a long time had a a stable, 
uh, vibrant political and economic base. The, the, uh, the Chaldean Christians there got along okay mm-hmm. until the rise of radical Islam in the 20th century. Now, there's friction, don't get me wrong, but it erupted into civil war. When you make enough money, it's not worth shooting each other over. Right. And that's they're very well put. That's exactly right. When well, you can but make you know, money... that's... that. No, I see. I, yes, most of the time. I think that's true. Because when you have consensual self-government, you have people who make money off of things. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you can make a lot of money off of war, but that's when war happens somewhere else. <laughs> when war happens on your doorstep, no, war's not a good thing. Right. That Then war is bad for business. Yes. But when you throw in the the religious aspect that drives a lot of the genocide in Africa and a lot of the and, and all the strife in the Middle East it trumps economics 100% every time yeah oh so in other That's words if we just get rid of all religion we'd all be better no because then we'd be like the Soviet Union and we would relentlessly roll over everybody that's good. I know, that's not right. just our own you know, I say that tongue in cheek, but I, I, I. But no, but that's the logical question that, that some will ask. Precisely it. That's but right. But then, but I, really, you know, when you look at atheist nations mm-hmm. or nations that are that act atheistic, for yeah. lack of a better term, that's Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia. That's right, because something fills that void. Yes. And in their case, and it's, it's the state. It's the state. It's and exactly when the state it. becomes the highest power, metaphysically, right. I mean, obviously politically, yes, yes, the state is. But when it comes to the highest power, metaphysically. Then it's a whole different ballgame because then you can roll over and commit genocide on anybody you want, and that's all right. As long as you get Because I will make it legal. That's right. I understand. Yeah. Well, I was quoting Palpatine, but I understand. That's right. It wasn't a track reference, so he didn't get it. Yeah, that's right. So this is a very good spot to to take a quick break. Um, And then we will continue. I have more questions for the two of you that I, I know you will knock out of the park. Um, but bourbon break, bourbon break, yay! Love it. So uh, again, we are here, Max and I'm relaxing at uh, Studio M, thirtieth floor of Nakatomi Plaza, uh, down the hall from Ellis, behind the waterfall. And I have poured. Ellis, he's a jerk, but he's got a great office. He's got a great office, great office, and uh, you know, you just uh, don't follow around that uh, the boss man. Uh, um, Wow, blanking out on the boss man, you know, oh, uh, and uh, die yeah. hard. Why? Why am I? Jim Shigita was the uh, was the uh, Joseph Yoshinobu Takagi. 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 Don't follow Mister Takagi around after lunch. He likes kimchi. Yes. Um. So I poured the fellas all a glass of Old Granddad One Fourteen. Yes. So this a is new, new for us. A new bourbon time. here on the show, and mm. um, verdict, fellas. What are you thinking? Very good, very good. Uh, the first sip, uh, as, as I was talking about before we, we started the show, I like that first sip to get a, a base mm-hmm. uh, before the ice has had a chance to really chill it and uh, melt into it to, to bring out that flavor. Chill it and thrill it. That, ooh, there you go, there, there you go. go. Chill, chill it and thrill it. it. Um, so that was very much uh, all right there in the tongue and the roof of the mouth mm-hmm. and uh, maybe a touch into your nasal passages. But once you get that, that ice and the, the, the water and you get that flavor... Oh man, smooths out tremendously. Just yeah. tremendously. I like the way it stays on the tongue. Yes. Real nice. Um, you know, the high proof, it makes it a little beefy. Um, but it's the the Careful. the aging. I tried to talk before I had swallowed it. <clears throat> the the aging makes it real nice and smooth. Um, got a great color and a touch of chocolate for me. Yeah, I get a little bit of sweetness, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so there's some sweet and some chocolate to it, I think. Um, <clears throat> really nice and chewy. I like it. Yeah. Uh, the 114 is a good reason. Uh, this is one where you're almost expected to have on the rocks because it does help dilute the, the alcohol content. Yeah, I never even, By volume. I never even attempted this one neat. I don't know that I would. It would probably just uh, <clears throat> be too harsh. But mellowed with just a couple cubes of ice, and it, it, it really does sing in yeah. many respects. Uh, it is, it's localized. It is definitely not a global one, you know, where some of them, you're, you're affected everywhere. This is just the yes. mouth. Just the tongue, really. Yeah, uh, it, it really is just the mouth, primarily the tongue. 
Um, not a whole lot of that burn into, into the throat, yeah. down to the nothing stomach. Nothing down to the stomach, esophagus, nothing in the sinuses either. Yeah. <clears throat> At least for me. Yeah. Very mellow. It's still a little sharp. Um, but it's... 114 proof. Yeah. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, even with the ice, it's still a little bit sharp, but it's, it's like I said, it really mellowed out nicely. The flavor comes yeah, out. Yeah, it's kind of a contradiction because it's kind of a big flavor, but a big mellow flavor. Yeah, yeah. So That's very well put. It's yeah. a little, a little mm. bit, but it's... Uh, it's a little spicy. And it's not milk chocolate either. It's right. more kind of that cacao almost to it. Like I find it still a little... Thing. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, I don't yes. know what's in it, but I find it like a little spicy. Yeah. Um, not, I wouldn't necessarily call it peppery, but, you know, it, it's in that... You know that's general not bad, area. Yeah, it's, it's not it's bad not, though. It's, yeah. it's, it's a smooth spice, not a spotted spice. Well, I, I don't know. I you know. Or maybe you're maybe you're thinking it differently. Um, when I made the mistake of, of uh, trying to, to speak before I fully swallowed that and coughed, um, now it's sticking with me a little bit more. But that because uh, it, uh, you know, pepper. That's that's good. Yeah. 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 That's a part of it. So it's, it, yeah, it's a little cacao and then a little pepper. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good, Robert. Really, really good. So My Jen, palate is finally making strides. That's it. yeah, yeah. You did really. So uh, at this bourbon break, we also have some melancholy chores. Yes, some sad yeah, we've, got, we've got a long list this time yes, too. Yes, yes, and even some, some that have not made our list that we you know probably should note just because they're recent. Yes, uh, and, and certainly there are, there are some other significant deaths, but these five are are people that. We've read about, read of, enjoyed their work, whatever. So when we talk about masters of the craft, right, uh, and people who are important to our worldview, these are some folks that are that are yes. right there, uh, top amongst them. Nichelle Nichols, yes, Lieutenant yes. Uhura, great uh, herself, yes. You know, I think most people are familiar with the story that she was a little bit unhappy with Star Trek and had considered leaving the show After and the second season, yes. And approached Dr. King, and he said, absolutely do not leave the show, because you are you are a member of the crew. You are a black woman that's just there. Right. You're, she is the primary bridge officer who is the communications officer. She's right there in the middle of everything. In, in every scene on the bridge, and is just seen as another officer. Yep. There was there was the genius of that role of that part in the show is that there's there's nothing special here. She's just another officer. Yeah, she's, she's seen as com- like, a competent member of the team that's no different than anyone else. Right. And that well, was the, King's no point. different than Sulu. And they see us as equals now. Those are yeah. the words he used to. Yeah, her. It, it was it was. And super. you know it's interesting when we talk about that concept. I just want to segue just a little bit here because. Yeah. I find that this is probably your experience, too, because we've talked a little bit about this in the past. But when I was watching Star Trek from the beginning, I never gave it a second thought that there was a Russian, uh, an Asian man, and a black woman on the on the bridge. And, you know, and the Scotsman. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, all these different nationalities, were they were just people. Because to me, they were no different than anybody else in America. Mm-hmm. Right, and again, I know that's partially uh, the genius of the show and the way it's presented, but I think that's also what makes our generation so unique from the boomers and the millennials. Mm-hmm. Is that we take a lot of this stuff for granted that the boomers, granted, they had to they had to work at to get it. So I give them credit for forcing the issue. They, were, for in, us to, they yeah. were in power at the time. Right. For us to be able to take it for granted. Uh, whereas the millennials, they were like, well, why isn't it more? Which seems to be the common question with them. <laughs> why isn't it more? Um, but for us, you know, we just took it for granted in so many different ways. Whether it's, you know, I mean, how many people of the boomer generation when they were our age, you know, young kids to, you know, or teens to, you know, young adults would have watched a show like Good Times or Sanford and Sons? Whereas it was just more comedy for us. Yeah, the Jeffersons. The Jeffersons Jeffersons were funny. Right. The couple across the hall that was a white man and a black woman, they were funny. Right. And And that's all that counted. That's all it counted. And while there was race involved in some of those shows, some of those episodes, obviously race can be involved in in the shows in many ways, but a lot of that went over our heads when we were kids, unless it was explicit. Yeah. Occasionally it was. And occasionally it was, yeah. I mean... 
you know, when the Jeffersons were part of uh, the Archie Bunker, you know, all in the family, obviously race was a lot more prominent. Because, uh, you know, uh, George always liked to call uh, Archie, you know, his honky neighbor. You know, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. But, but of course, now, he never called George the N-word. No, you know, that's Which right. is interesting. But anyways, I just, it just, it, I just wanted to bring that up. You know, she's, she's part of that first round of culture, and it's not distru- disruption. Yes. That by the time we get to it, just a few years later, is not disruptive. That's right. It's done. It's norm. It's norm. And it's, I find it fascinating how fast we went from, uh, from pre. Star Trek with Lieutenant Uhura to Good Times and the Jeffersons. We're talking a decade. Yeah. Yeah. There were yes. there were very few black faces on television, mainstream television from yeah. before from sixty four backwards. Right. There just weren't. Right. Uh, and yet that's because of the law, I think. But among along with the law came the culture and we realized, well maybe we can do better than that. And Michelle Nichols was certainly one of those first faces. Yeah, uh, that normalized yeah. that for so many. Yeah, yeah, and, and and I mean we, it's common for Trek fans to kind of bag on Roddenberry a little bit because there comes a point where you're like, just give us some action. That was part of the show that we wanted, but there is part of this that where Roddenberry deserves a ton of credit. Yes. for all of this. And it's, that is it's not as pure as you might imagine, you know, because she was. Uh, he and her had a thing on the side. That's one of the reasons that, that is true, she was yes. put into the position yeah. she was. Uh, but she made it work. But she made it work. And she, she, because she, and if you read her autobiography, she talks about this because this was the best opportunity she had as an actress. Oh, uh, yeah. A black actress in you know mid-1960s. This was an enormous, a regular role. Right, because yeah. again, she's not playing and somebody who's made. And it's not just because she's having a deal with the producer, although that's part of it. But then all of a sudden, the fruit from that is completely different. Yeah. 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 So, two more actors to bring up, again, that we appreciate their craft and that we've lost. Jimmy Kahn. Yes. Favorite of mine. Love oh, him. Santino, Santino. Oh, Santino. Uh, never let them know outside the family what you're thinking, Santino. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Never let anybody outside the family know what you're thinking. Uh, but I also loved him in... in uh, not just The Godfather, but El Dorado, one of my favorite John Wayne movies. Yeah. And then David Warner. Yes. Oh, the, the, the king, pros pro. The, king, the pros pro. Absolutely. Patrick Stewart did a wonderful uh, article in The Guardian. I don't know if you guys read this. Uh, but they, he, he said on his Twitter feed that, hey, they let me do this because he was intimidated by David Warner as <laughs> Hamlet when he was beginning Patrick Stewart was beginning his career right before he joined the Royal Shakespeare Company, he was blown away by Warner's performance as Hamlet. And and they had they became good friends as part of that. And, and Warner is, didn't even really like the stage all that much. No, no he didn't. He was kind of intimidated by the stage. But he, he was, much preferred film. Uh, and it was something that Stuart says, you know, this guy here he owned the role. And this is post-Olivier, so you're, you've got some benchmark <laughs> to talk about here. He says, this guy here, he says, I've never seen a Hamlet like the one that David Warner gave that, it's like 1964, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, and it was like unbelievably good. And this was, that yeah. was just one thing. That's the young David Warner. Because he's been around for so long and done yeah. so many things. I mean, just from Star Trek alone, uh, he he's played uh, at least three major roles in Star Trek V. He was uh, the uh, the Federation representative. We can skip a bit further on that one. But he played Gorkin, Chancellor uh, Gorkin, Grand Chancellor Gorkin, which was Gorbachev basically. Yeah. Uh, in uh, in Star he was Trek, phenomenal as Gorkin. Absolutely, he 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 sells it because of that acting ability he has. He's just just his voice. Mm-hmm. His great presence. Yeah, very much so. So what was the not, third one then? Ah. And I'm surprised you don't get this. It's from Next Generation, Season 6, Chain of Command. He was the torturer. Yes, the torturer. He and Patrick Stewart were together. Of course, they had known each other. Who who gets to say it? Do uh, Uh, we give give him the... There are four lights. Better than that. Come on. There are four lights. (laughs) Well, we can do a Patrick Stewart. That's that's exactly... There are four lights. That's right. Fantastic. I mean, that should have won Stewart and Emmy. 
should have really <laughs> well, should have should have won one too. That's correct, which was just a little bit. Before I said the thing that really I didn't like about that episode was at the end when he admitted to Troy that he saw five lights. It, I think that killed the defiance. Uh, yeah, that's the that is there was much controversy over that conversation in the script because to me it weakened him. It did, but it also. But I mean, I like that the other argument was it, it humanized said, him too, so and showed him as 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 brittle, which. Yeah, I, I get the tension. Yeah. I understand. Do you want your captain to be that? Well, you certainly wouldn't want Kirk, Patrick, Stewart, Picard, maybe. Uh, it's still, it was one of the finest episodes. You captain finest, surrender. Uh, <laughs> one of the finest performances. Yeah. Oh yes, yes, yes. And, and that's just the ones that we can tell. He he was in. Uh, he did uh, Wallander with uh, Kenneth Branagh, which if you get a chance to see that on Netflix, it is spectacular. He plays his dad. Yeah. And if you to go back a little bit with Yoad Gruffin, he was in the Horatio Hornblower series for A and E way back in the day. Yeah. Uh, he had a major role as one of the captains yeah. in that. And I know you're going about to yes, give the, some others. My favorite, absolute favorite, David Warner role. He was good in The Omen, but to me, he was evil in Time Bandits. That is a, film, was, a film you don't see much anymore, but right. was on cable a lot in the '80s. I loved it. And I love David Warner. He, as, yeah, as he was evil. he was Jack the Ripper, uh, and that's that was one of his probably his biggest starring role, I would think. Oh, that's might, that's uh, that's uh, with time after excuse time. Excuse me, I, that's Malcolm McDowell, time after time. Yeah, yeah, you're, yes, you're right. Yeah, another but another great performance is Jack the Ripper. Mary Steenburgen, I think, is in with she with, is. That's yeah, correct. Yes, that's, that's right. But uh-huh. t- you know, Time Bandits though is the uh, it's Monty Python. Yes, almost. Well, yeah, with Sean Connery, Sean Connery as Agamemnon yeah, and, and Agamemnon, all that. I've forgotten yeah. about that. John Gilgood is the supreme being. Yeah, I am the supreme being. I'm not entirely dim. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one last one uh, to salute for the summer. Well, that's three. So that would be four. So there's two more. Oh yes, I'm sorry. You're right. Two more. So David McCullough. Yes. Uh, we have to get David McCullough in as a, a writer. That one hits close to home. Yeah, that's right. We've mentioned him often. Yeah, uh, as as a, we as all a have great a window shelf, shelf full of his stuff, right? Uh, into some really great perform, uh, really historical personages. Yes, that he's and done. events. And yeah. events. His seventeen seventy six is just phenomenal. phenomenal. Right. Yeah, I Absolutely. really got to great know, storyteller. I really got to know Harry Truman through his book Truman, hmm. uh, which was I, I, I and it's a Pulitzer winner. That's absolutely it was, and uh, and he narrated his own stuff. Uh, nice. Which was really cool. Uh, he did the uh, the yeah, audio version. The voice of, of the Ken Burns Civil War. Very right, much so. Well. That's right. Yeah, uh, Lent had a lot of a lot of weight with his reputation. Yeah, he was uh, he was truly one of the giants yes. uh, of historical. And I don't I won't say historical fiction. It's just historical storytelling. That's a good way of putting popular it. history. Popular history. Popular that's history, a, that's yeah. a good way of putting so, it. Yeah, there's a term for for that, which is uh, uh, narrative nonfiction. Is what that is, right? And, and you know, Harris uh, Larson does it with his books, uh, yeah. you know, like Devil in the White City, uh, which is the one about uh, the American version of Jack the Ripper at the Chicago World's Fair in the 1890s. Which right. is a phenomenal book, which is not not that different than Michael and uh, Jeff Shara either. They're doing this very no, similar. No, it is. It's different because they're, um, they're, they're because more they personal. are fictionalizing history, right? Whereas McCullough and Eric Larson are narrating. History. Right. There is a difference because they're not making anything up to put. Bruce Catton or Shelby Foote would be a closer example. Yes, Shelby yeah. Foote would yeah. be a, a great example of that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, perhaps, although maybe a little bit more rigid in, in, in his historical uh, presentation. Yeah. 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 I, and uh, McCullough was more footnotes, especially. Yeah, he yeah. was the king of the narrative historian. I think. Yes. Very yes, much, yes. and he will be missed. Yeah. Yes. And now we get to the last one. I just wanted to mention very briefly. You not sportsy guys, but like Michelle Nichols, this man was a pioneer, and that's Bill Russell. Yes, to me, was. he's you know it, when you talk the NBA, and I, I'm not a huge NBA person, but to me, he's he and Jordan are the two greatest, and everybody else is a notch below that. Right. Um, not that they aren't also a lot of great players, but to me, they're the two cornerstones of the NBA. Russell showing that. You know, not only can a black man coach, but he can win. And then, of course, Jordan bringing back athleticism after a period where basketball was kind of hockey on wood. Uh, you know, very, very physical, very rough. And Jordan kind of rescues it with his athleticism. They're the two most important NBA players in history, I think. Well, you know, like I said, we could add some more. 
because uh, you want to do that, you know, Vince Scully. Yes, Vince oh, yes, Scully. I, mean, I, think, yeah. I think, you know, the, the voice of sports. Yeah, the voice for, of sports. For 60 years, I guess it is. And it's something yeah, like that. I mean, years, it's, yeah. it's, it's incredible. I mean, primarily the Dodgers in baseball. That was his main gig. But, I was but he big, did everything. I was yeah. a big Dodgers fan in the yeah. late 70s. You anyway, know, so if you listen to uh, either radio or television, you know, he was the voice of baseball. He, he did football. He did everything. Yeah. And he, Our generation knew his voice. Yeah. Absolutely. And he did it with a respect for all participants. Yes. He wasn't a homer. Uh, even though he, he's primarily Dodgers, he's one of those last uh, uh, true uh, uh, journalist announcers in the sense yeah. that he had stories to tell, but he didn't tell it from, you know, well, my team did this. Yeah. Which is, you know, he, sometimes he, I don't mind that. Like, if I'm watching the home feed for a baseball game, I want to hear about their team. That's why yeah. I'm watching their feed. Yeah. But, you know, when you're on, like, on the national stage... His, his way of doing it is so much better. Yeah, it's I, not parochial. Right. Yeah. And he approached it with a kindness, yes. I think, that, that was unique. Vince Scully and Joe Garagiola together are oh, just... Yes. Oh, my gosh. That is like the epitome of, of announcing. Thank, you, thank yeah. you for bringing up Vince Scully. That's an important one to, to bring up. Yeah. I, I, yeah. 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 If you're so any, any way into baseball, that, that one's good. He's, he's yeah. up there. He's, so it's, it's, it's been a sad summer. It has. It has. So. Um Nice alliteration. Did we... Uh, I'm now blanking on his name. Um, the uh, actor who died uh, in the middle of his shoot uh, earlier this year. Did we cover him in the last set of episodes? Um, he was in Goodfellas and... Oh, Ray Liotta. Ray Liotta, Ray Liotta yes. yes. No, we did not mention Honestly, Ray Liotta. I think we should mention him because he, he was also... A, 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 again, a, phenomenal in uh, that role. Yes, and he, he struggled with addiction a lot... Uh, and uh, he he was one of those guys, you know, that you expected to finally defeat his inner demons. And he had, I don't want to say limited success, because I believe he was sober there at the end, but uh, he had some strong, strong issues with that, uh, that he was very open with. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That uh, it, it, Trying to say, don't let this become your own demons. Uh, and I always admired that for, from him. Yeah, because he was very outspoken on those things. Yeah, it's it's been a big summer for oh for, for big deaths. And then speaking of Ray Liotta, then Paul Sorvino as well passed away. Oh he yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah. So yeah. again, another another hugely successful actor. Again, somebody whose craft wound its way into everyone's consciousness. Um, he was a singer as well, opera singer. Oh, didn't know that. And uh, well, that's why he left Law and Order. The dialogue is wrecking his voice. He wanted to preserve his voice. Wow. And not do series television because by the end of the shoots of these series, his voice is ruined. Interesting. I did not know that. Yep. So, um, and I really like Paul Sorvino for being a very genuine person. You know, his daughter, of course, is an actress, Mira. Mira. Yeah. And got tangled into the whole. Miramax Harvey Weinstein mess. Yes, she did. And he was... He was ready to cap Weinstein. That's right. I mean, yes. he was like, this dude better go to jail or I'm blowing his so-and-so head off. That's right. You don't you don't mess with daddy. And uh, yeah. he, he was... Uh, so well, and then like, Epstein had to go and, you know, commit suicide. <laughs> I can't even say that with a straight face. Wrong, wrong pedo. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah that's this right. is Weinstein. No, Weinstein, Weinstein, <laughs> not Epstein. That's right. Well, all in the same, same vein. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it was some of the same guys. So some of the crossing yeah. the same paths for sure. Yeah. So oh man, I can't believe I'd forgotten about Big Pauly. So again, yeah, yeah. That, that, Worf's that, foster brother, I might remember. Yes, that. yes, right. I was about to mention that there's a, there's a Trek connection there as well. So, anyways, that's a huge number of people to, to raise a glass to. So, so yes, uh, to well, those who have passed, that's right. And uh, you know, with so many, I, I got to think we probably missed some. In yeah. case we missed any, we're we're unmissing yes. them. That's right. Yes. So, uh, a toast to the sad Cheers, summer of twenty twenty two. Old granddad one fourteen to all of you. Oh yeah, we get, we brought out the good stuff. Oh, that's that so good. Mm, 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 mm. All right, so real quick. So back to the UN. Yeah, because that, that was a, yeah, a 15-minute bourbon break. But anyway. We knew it was coming. So what good can the UN actually do then? Oh, so oh, really? Focus well, on refugees? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I think the, the humanitarian on, yeah, uh, it's relief the humanitarian. It's, it's exactly and the human good. rights issues, I think, uh, is it, probably it, a good thing for it to be heavily involved. Yeah, in. it, it, as long as they're not doing things like putting Saudi Arabia in charge of things, or yeah. you know, putting Iran in charge of the the, the women's rights committee. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. Right. Uh, again, so that's a huge, you know, a huge criticism. Recently, Saudi Arabia, someone from Saudi Arabia is made chair of a human rights UN commission. So if you see a human right in Saudi Arabia, somebody call me. Um, especially given, you know, the circumstances around the, you know, the journalist that was murdered and all that. Right. You don't know what... So I think that's a rightly... You know, a right criticism. Well, uh, that's not the right way to phrase it, but it's a, it's a valid criticism of them. So, but you know, but what good that, can they do? But even that, saying that you know, being involved in humanitarian issues, really, all they can do is make speeches about it. This is part of the problem with them to begin with. Yeah, is that all they can? When talking about. But they could use their funding and their organization, though, to do some good for refugees. Yes, they can. They can help with like refugees. That. And you know, where where there are crises and disasters, I think that would be. You know, the UN seems to me would be the perfect place. Pro- theoretically, provided there's oversight on the money, because that's been something yes. they've been criticized about too. There's money leaking out of the UN. It's not leaking; it's pouring out like buckets. So there's, there's that's why we are that's why we are in arrears for our support. Although, given all the years that we were the sole support, I think we should get a pass for about twenty yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we did we actually did withhold our payments until there was financial reforms, right. and there was an oversight office created pursuant. How to bad that. does your finances have to be for the U.S. government to say? Uh, that ain't right. You better clean that up. Yeah. How bad do you have to be? Yeah. I mean, think about that. I mean, that just blows my mind. Yeah. So, I, I think, from a yeah. theoretical, in a perfect world perspective, I think, yes, there's a lot they could do. Now, if they could manage the money without uh, people dipping their fingers into the pie constantly, which honestly I don't think will ever not happen. Because uh, that's the, just the nature of it's, the beast. It's the nature of when you're sloshing around. Yeah. Big Especially when like you involve all of these these countries where bribery and and kickbacks yeah. are the natural order of things. Where they don't understand, what do you mean I can't take 10% off the top? So what, 5%? No, you can't even have 5%. What are you talking about? Yeah. So I mean, that's that's that was the nature of, of those jobs for a long time. Right. Yeah. So, you were expected to feed yourself off of the job. Right. It's like being a tax collector in the Roman Empire. You were a tax collector, and what you collected, what you, you took part of that. So when when you have people that that are involved in, with the money that have that kind of mindset, the corruption is going to be vast, and that's part of the problem. Um, but yeah. Coordinating disaster relief and things like that, I think, is pro- and being the court of last, um, uh, what's the, the last uh, resort? Resort. Thank yeah. you. La- court of last resort for uh, international uh, uh, legal issues and what have you. The, yeah. The- yep. Yeah, right. I, I think that's that is an activity that should continue, and and I've gone back and forth on this a lot. You think about this, people call for the. U.S. to leave the U.N., and, and I'm sympathetic to that view, but I, eventually I come around to, no, it would be better if we stayed, but push strongly for more reform. Yeah. Again, especially with the idea of when you have these important committees or important structures like the Security Council to only let nations with consensual governments participate. Right. That's... That's a hard jump to make because that was not the intent. But I think it's the only thing that fixes this. Again, you you can't let... Well, how do you define consensual government? Because Russia is a permanent member of the security... I don't think Russia should be in the Security Council because of that. And neither should China. And neither should China, yeah. But, you know, the goal with that was to to give them, like you said, give these these nations a way to counteract each other yeah to negate each other essentially but you know the rotating members of the security council can be anybody 
right. could be freaking North Korea. Right. And and they have, you know, the worst countries that you can think of have been part of the Security Council. And, you know, I'm not saying that we should not have third world nations have the chair of the UN, but it strikes me as really odd when we have chair after chair, you know, secretary general after secretary general from places where human rights, like you said, you know, call me when one shows up. Yeah. Yeah. That just strikes me as really yeah. odd. And I understand that it needs to rotate. And if you if you say, well, if we we're, we're going to we're going to basically say nobody in Africa can ever have that, at least currently. And in a lot of places. And that's not necessarily a good thing either, but it just man, yeah. there should be but, some standards but, uh, somewhere. But some of these, yeah, I mean some of these committees again, these standing committees on human rights or or whatever these other structures are, I think the primary reform that's needed, and again, I, I understand this is a huge hurdle that's probably never going to be jumped. These should only be open to nations with consensual governments. Yeah. And dictators and their nations need not apply. And if part that makes you upset, too bad. Part of the problem with that, though, is they will drop out of the UN, and what little influence you have over them is gone. gone. That's exactly it. That's part of the problem with because again, but what influence do we have with some of these bad actors now? Well, most of them, I would say, we do have some. Yeah, absolutely. Most you mentioned Saudi Arabia, the ones where we don't, it is glaringly obvious. And I don't know if they would be any worse if they left. So no, I mean we wouldn't be worse off if Iran and North Korea left the U.S. No, I mean I don't think that those countries would be any worse in their their violations if they left. Yeah, they wouldn't. Yeah, so I mean, because they're they're gonna just gonna do whatever the hell they want, and if we kicked out Russia from the UN, they're still gonna be in the Ukraine because Putin is freaking insane. Yeah, I mean, I, I he's I think he's unhinged. He at very at the very least he's a sociopath because again I, yeah. power corrupts. We've talked about yeah. that often. Yeah. Well, you know, definition of sociopath is basically when other people aren't real. Yeah, I mean that that that's one of the ways you can put it. Yeah. He's that kind of world leader. He's a very dangerous world leader because of that. Yeah. And one way that the UN does have an effect on countries like that, because they do have a vibrant export business. I wouldn't say they have a vibrant economy necessarily. Yeah. But they do have a vibrant export business export business in natural resources. And the UN laying in sanctions does have an effect. Now, people violate those sanctions left and right. I mean, you know, Russia bought all kinds of oil from Iran and Iraq and Syria when those countries weren't supposed to be selling any oil to anybody. Yeah. So, but, you know, a lot of that you could achieve without the UN, too. If somebody had a... Peer a, pressure a, is a, a thing with nations, though. A vigorous, you know, a, a vigorous diplomacy, a vigorous foreign policy by someone like the U.S. in concert with Britain and France and, and Japan and some of these other nations... Could probably achieve a lot of the same things without the UN. Sorry, could you say that? Yes, but no. Here's the critical piece for that: is the fact that that's colonialism 2.0, 3.0. As far as the rest of the world's concerned, it's those big, wealthy Western white nations telling us what to do. Whereas in this case here, there is an esprit de corps and there is a a collaborative effort, right? At least on some level. At least a, a. uh, scaffolding in which to hang. They have a voice. They have a voice. Yeah. That's correct. They, you know, now, whether no or not they can affect anything yeah. is, is an entirely another matter. It, it, but, it forces the, those big nations to engage then the small nations and it, be mindful of their concerns. Well, that's well, in many even ways, if they dismiss Otherwise, it's tyranny. Well, in many ways, the UN structure like that is actually proper. Because think about it this way. It is very much like a constitutional republic in that sense. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you take that representative democracy that is a republic and make everything a straight democracy, well, what is that? Well, that's two foxes and a hen voting on what's for dinner. Yeah, the tyranny of 51%. So, yeah, so the UN structure, even as flawed as it is, then enforces the notion of 
majority rule, minority rights. Yes. And yes. again, like I said, it, it makes the big nations at least listen to the small ones. Right. We, we may still go ahead and do what we're going to do. Yeah. We're, but we're, honestly, we're I, do, I think do. it does modify the behavior some. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. you guys are both on the position of stay in the UN. Absolutely. And hope that it continues to improve. The UN is like democracy. It is the worst example of its kind of thing, you know, whether it be government or international agreement, except all of the others. Except all the others. That's very that's that's very cogent, Robert. I like that a lot. I think Thank you, you may GK. have swayed me. I think you may have swayed me. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I mean, I, don't I'm get sure. me wrong. It needs a lot of reform. It, yeah. It really that's does. There are, there are a ton of failures. Well, Again, holding failures. that a many diverse list. interests together and as one is almost a Herculean task. It's yeah. almost impossible. And I think its biggest failures are the the attempts to interfere in civil wars. Now, stopping war is a phenomenal ideal. I think that is a phenomenal ideal, especially in the countries where it's a civil war, because in those places, it, it, in this age is almost always the worst places to have a war because they're already at the bottom of the economic rung. And once you have a war, you're going to devastate the entire country yeah. and knock them back to the equivalent of the Stone Age. That's right. Blown to the Stone Age, son. I mean, yeah, we used to joke about uh, Afghanistan was the first country that was bombed out of the Stone Age, uh, which, you know, you'd say, well, it's going back there now. Uh, but, you know... Well, Stone Age with, you know, Apache helicopters. With Apache helicopters, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, it's one of those things where, you know, you, you want to get rid of it, you think, it's almost like we're, we're abused spouses. Yeah. You know, we'd love to get out of the situation, but we're too afraid to. Because what, you know, because it could be worse. Could be worse. the way we think about it. Could be now, worse. Now, granted, that may or may not be true. You know, a world without the UN, honestly, I do think would be a, a worse Place. I think so too. I think we've come not so necessarily far, for us. We can't get rid of it, but for the world. Yeah, it would, like it would most likely. Yeah, I mean, it, again, even things like the WHO, as much as they were criticized during COVID, has value. Yeah, um, UNESCO has value. Right. The, the these plot, conferences on sustainable but, de- development. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's like a big yeah, wank I mean, off for the yeah, for the is. for the leftists. But those are noble goals, actually. Yeah, that's right. You can't. Nobody can argue with you. Right now, how they want to go about them, I think, is is often utterly effed up. But the goals themselves, I think, are can have some value. Yeah. 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 And unfortunately, I think the way they 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 approach those kinds of things often are pie in the sky. This is part of the problem with an ineffectual organization. They tend to go, "This is the ideal, and that's what we have to have the first time out." Yeah. So they're kind of like the Democrats. Yeah. I mean, this it, is what we want. This is what we think the world ought to be. Therefore, we're going to legislate it all right now. This is why a lot of times when they get in, they're knocked right out of power. And Republicans do the same thing. Yeah. This is what we think it ought to be. Whereas when both sides have advanced their agenda, it's when they've done it incrementally. For the most part. Yeah. yeah. Civil Rights Act of 1964 was not an incremental thing. But on the other hand, yes, it was. Because you couldn't have had that without all of the other... 13, 14, 15th Amendments. Well, right, and the fights of the 50s and the 40s and you're yeah. integrating the, the, the troops in World War II. Yeah, because there's, there's a Civil Rights Act in the 50s that Eisenhower right. signs and then there's... Exactly. There are a integration ton of, the of universities. things that lead up yeah. to that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's... The same is true for, uh, you know, uh, gender equality with women's rights. You know? Yeah. And I, that's what I mean when I say gender equality. Uh, but pie in the sky never works. Pie in the sky never works. And, and I think that's, that's where the where UN fails. The UN gets mired down. Yeah. So it, it, focus on the things that work. Sustainability requires uh, incrementalism. Yeah. So yeah. Abandon the things that don't work, like sitting in a trench in a blue helmet while everyone shoots at you. But focus on the international court. Focus on refugee help. Focus on hunger and these kinds of issues. Right. And the UN can make a huge difference. Yes. Yes, I, I think so. Awesome! You guys did great. You guys did great. Thank you very much. It's still a wretched hive of scum and villainy, but, you know, it's our wretched hive of scum and villainy. It's the only one we've got. It's the only one we've got. Well said. So, Francis, what's next, buddy? Code of Honor next time. We're going to uh, 
talk about the great philosopher David Hume. He's the guy that's going to be the subject of our two episodes ahead, uh, but we're going to go into his quotations next time and delve deeply into what one of the greatest uh, philosophers, modern philosophers out there, who was Scottish, and of course, as we know, if it's not Scottish, Scottish, it's it's crap. So you'll hear that in the next two episodes several times, I'm sure. So be here. Hope you enjoyed another pointless discussion of eternal questions. Remember, new episodes publish every Friday at noon Eastern. Spread the word. We're on all the major podcast platforms. And leave us a comment or review because that helps others find us. We're on Instagram, Twitter, as well as our website, snakesandotters.com. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Join us next week, same snake time, same otter channel.